You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 39, 1985's Fletch, featuring Chevy Chase, John Hamm, Multiple Wigs, Zero Shoes, Five Star Ratings, False Teeth, Televangelists, Heroin, Song of the South, Murderous Millionaires, Randall Tex Cobb, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Martin. Yes. Go Lakers. What's your name? Fletch. I want you to murder me. Can I borrow your towel for a sec? My car just hit a water bubble. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready to go undercover? Oh, yes. So we're doing 1985's Fletch, which I'm going to have to say probably isn't actually a secret handshake movie for either one of us. Like This wasn't a huge like formative movie for me growing up. I liked it. I liked Fletch Lives, although I'm not going to lie, like... I had the moment, because I rewatched it last night before we recorded today, to where I was like, I don't know if I've actually seen this. I more remembered the poster and VHS art with the awesome, like, Gone with the Wind the parody. The romance, yeah. Uh, then I did the actual movie. There were beats from it that I kind of remembered, like jokes and stuff, but I was like, hmm... I don't know. I, this might be a first-time viewing. I'm not sure. It was almost like a weird sense memory thing. But the whole point of this is basically me saying we're doing it not because it's a secret handshake movie, but because Confess Fletch just came out, the reboot from uh, Greg Matola starring John Hamm as Fletch, and it's fucking awesome. Agreed. So we wanted to go back and revisit these more to compare and contrast how Ham's take on the character is a little different from Chevy Chase's. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask you, were, were these, am I wrong in assuming that they weren't big, like, movies for you growing up or anything? Or did, were they, did they play a bigger part in your, your formative years than they did in mine? No, not at all. I think that there were movies from that era that we've talked about, like Batman or, like, The Burbs for me. Or that I or Jaws that I've seen like literally you know all together hundreds of times. I think I probably watched Fletch like twice in high school, um, and the Fletch lives once in high school because um, I had a buddy I grew up with named Matt Lamb, and we like he um, went with me through elementary, middle school, and high school. Like this really one of the goofiest people you've ever met, 
Um, and Fletch Lives is his favorite movie. Like he talked, he quoted it all the time. Not Fletch. Fletch Lives. Fletch Lives is like his favorite. Jesus. Yeah. And I remember finally watching it. And then even at that time, I was like, Matt, what the fuck, dude? Like, and, I, <laughs> and he's like, oh, I think it's funny. Like that was his, his kind of thing. Um, it is funny. It is funny, but it's also like pretty egregious. Um, oh, it's real offensive. If you showed that to anybody under 40 these days, you would get canceled. Yeah. It's a rough one, but no, it was definitely that series. Actually, I even told my brother we we're doing this and he's like, Oh, I like that movie. That's, that's what it is to us. Cause usually my brother and I grew up with the same stuff. And his response was, Oh, I like that movie. Not like, remember when we did this or you still watch that with dad. This was not part of our, our rotation whatsoever, but I did really enjoy rewatching him. Oh, I did too, and I even uh, bought a bunch of the books after watching Confess Fletch. You indeed. Because I loved it so much, I read three of them in the last week, uh, because they, they started as thin, I, I don't think it's unfair to say, kind of like dime store or drugstore mystery novels from a guy named Gregory McDonald um, that invented Fletch. I am Fletcher. Erwin Fletcher, uh, who was an investigative reporter who goes undercover to solve various mysteries. But in the first movie, which is what 1985's Fletch is based after, the first book, it's pretty close, like, in terms of plot, is that Fletch is an undercover reporter on the beach trying to suss out a heroin dealer and do a big story on it. And then at the same time, he's contracted by a millionaire uh, to kill him. And that's it. That That's the whole thing. Um, and the movie alternates kind of wildly in terms of like fidelity to the source material because like there will be whole scenes in Fletch that are almost like verbatim from the book, right down to dialogue. And then the rest almost seems like a vehicle for Chevy Chase to just do weird Chevy shtick, including like his Peter Sellers knockoff master of disguise bullshit. It's rewatching the first one. And I really, again, I enjoyed it, but it is a joke a second. I mean, there's, there's scenes where it's exhausting, where it's, it's Chevy doing sometimes in a minute, five jokes, like in a conversation. And I couldn't help, but while watching this film, I mean, I think I thought this even the first time I saw it because Beverly Hills Cop was a part of my rotation. I said, what the fuck is this? This is just Beverly Hills Cop with Chevy Chase. And I didn't know about the books. Um, and rewatching it now, even more so, like with the Harold Faltermeyer score, I know you had some history about, about that as well, but like Faltermeyer score, um, a very similar type of plot uh, about a working class, not cop, but investigative reporter going into high society, um, toppling down rich people who basically get their just desserts, but also using his um, his wit and his wisecracking attitude to kind of float through this environment. But the difference being that Beverly Hills Cop is an action movie with a funny character. Like, I always feel like Axel is a actually a realistic guy. Like he's just a very fast talking guy. It's not always joke, 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 joke. This is a comedy. This feels like a mystery that vacillates between that and these, like, like you said, these shticks. And then all of a sudden we get serious for a bit. The tone is kind of uneven. I think, especially in the first Fletch, the second one is complete farce. It almost feels like, and honestly, the tone is the thing that they kind of nail the most from the books 
not necessarily in the humor itself because Fletch in the books is a lot more sardonic, a lot more nihilistic, almost mean-spirited. He makes Chevy Chase, notorious asshole Chevy Chase, we should say, behind the scenes, um, whose bad behavior might have actually informed the character or at least made him a little better fit for it, let's say. But, like, on the page, he's very acidic. Like, he has two ex-wives. He is always like dodging their lawyers who are looking for back alimony payments. He's a shithead to like his editor, uh, Clara Snow, who's fucking his main boss, Frank. Um, and that he even calls her like a bitch and like incompetent at her job and stuff. It's very, I mean, this is written in 1974, the first book, 11 years before the first movie actually comes out. And it's very much a product of the times. I mean, the, the next closest comparison I have in my head is like the uh, John D. McDonald books based on the Travis McGee character where they were just kind of a long running beach bum investigates a bunch of mysteries and gets embroiled and kind of has to do the same thing that Fletch does like insert himself into various forms of high society where he doesn't fit in but he uses his muscle and his skills to kind of navigate and, and do do right usually by a damsel in distress in Fletch, it's a little different because the reporter side of it, this is where it varies from the books, is that it has, or it varies from the movie, is that it has the same kind of humor. It's a little sharper, a little more acidic on the page, but the two mysteries never intersect to where at the end of the movie Fletch, you get, you know, the millionaire and the corrupt cop are all like they're in cahoots it turns out and yada yada that's not in the book at all basically what happens is that Fletch is on the beach investigating uh dope smuggling and and, uh, dope dealing that's actually killing like kind of these kids on the fringe these addicts because he's in bed and this is probably the most controversial part at least the part that stuck like stuck out to me on the page is that he's sleeping with a 15 year old heroin addict named Bobby who overdoses and dies. And McDonald even copped to the idea that she was the main inspiration for the books. Like she was the the character that when he actually saw the end uh, product that was the movie, he was like, well, where's Bobby? Like you cut her out completely. Now, I don't think a major mainstream movie from a a huge studio is going to have its main character sleep next to, let alone with, a 15-year-old heroin addict. But that was the thing is that Fletch kind of commits himself because he sees like the damage that this kind of holocaust of drugs is doing to these, these addicts and is just passing himself off as an addict the whole time. And then you have when he's hired by Alan Stanwyck to murder him. That's when you get a lot of the like shoe leather reporting side of it. Cause that's the thing is that the movie Fletch takes all of his investigations and uses that for like a vehicle for Chase's shtick where on the page, he's doing a lot of the same thing where he's like calling up Stanwyck's parents only instead of like middle America or wherever they are. In, They're in Utah in Utah. Yeah. In uh, the movie, they're in Pennsylvania, like a little steel town in the middle of nowhere out there. 
he calls them and the way he gets them on the phone is that he explains to them he's a Vietnam vet who's actually has a bronze star that he's never picked up before. And that's how he gains the trust of these people. Like he always has a backstory, but it always plays into like either him being a reporter or like him being a nom veteran or like some kind of aspect of his background itself instead of Chevy Chase, like donning a wig or false teeth or doing a weird voice or whatever. Like it's real, like investigative reporting that's the thing is that on the page whole chapters will literally just be conversations that he has on the phone it's like the most uncinematic like thing that you could imagine it's real like hitting the pavement making the phone calls sussing out and putting all the clues together the way that actual journalism is done where chases is like what if i just bungle through and be a stupid goofball and like put on some roller skates and a wig or something it's it's weird in the movies because he he balances though i wouldn't even call him a goofball like he's goofy but he's not dumb right it's it's he i think in both fletch and fletch lives like it comes across as like no no i know what i'm doing like oh, yeah i have the leg up because I remember when I watched the first trailer for Confess Fletch, I was a little worried they were kind of playing him up a little goofier. The movie does not end up that way, but I was worried they were going to make him more of a, a doof. That trailer is awful. It's not good. It's not the movie. It's not like they try to sell this screwball kind of comedy, which again, there's elements of it, but like it very much is even more so like the, the character in Confess Fletch is closer to what, uh, the character from the books is like is that again it's a lot like him getting in and investigating talking to like the wife of a potential suspect into the murder and stuff under the guise of like oh I'm I'm a society reporter and I'm here to do you know a story on like the the houses that you're designing and everything that's something that would straight up be in the book while in the meantime like he tells a couple jokes or does, like is just kind of goofy while he's doing it but like yeah with Chase, it's it's totally different. Yeah, there also I want to ask you from the books though is rewatching the first and then watching Confess Fletch. Like both of them really play up the sex appeal of this character, and is that there as well? Oh yeah, he fucks everything because that's that's something you see. I mean, again, a lot of those kind of like thinner like paperback mysteries and also like even action novel auction books like The Destroyer or The Enforcer. Where it's like they're they're kind of James Bondy, where it's like just it's basically a foreground conclusion. They're going to fuck everything that moves, but Chevy like they make him almost irresistible, especially in the first Fletch. As these women look at him, and if I get that he is conventionally handsome, maybe with his like, is he? I, that's that's what I'm confused because like I he think, has that thinning hair. He's kind of dumpy. Like I don't know, like. Chase looks like a dude who could be like your problematic drunk uncle too. Like, I don't think he's, he, outside of being tan, he's definitely not as handsome or as young, frankly, because in uh, the first Fletch book, Fletch is only 26 or 27 and already twice divorced, frankly. But again, yeah, that is part of the character's whole appeal is that he sleeps with everything. I mean, he sleeps with Stanwyck's light wife in uh, the first book in Confess Fletch, one of the biggest changes that they make is he fucks the Countess in it too, the Marsha Gay Harden yeah. character. Like that's uh, pretty gnarly. On top of um, Andy, yes. his uh, Italian uh, fiance too, who's played by Eli Roth's ex-wife who's smoking hot. Are they this. divorced now? I believe so, yeah. They've been divorced for a little while. Yeah, I kept thinking, um, is, that, is that her? Because I kept thinking, is this the girl from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It is. And it, and it yep. is. 
Yeah, she is quite hot in this as well. But yeah, that is part of it too. So you wonder if that was part of the the attraction for Chase to it too, is that he gets to play. Because there was always like, not necessarily in the vacation movies, obviously. Caddyshack. Stuff like Caddyshack, yeah. Funny Farm, like all this stuff. He always had a sex appeal or at least a hot love interest that he was either with or going after. I mean, Lacey Underall uh, from Caddyshack is like, like you just pointed out the epitome, the epitome of this with her and Ty Webb and like, well, even Beverly D'Angelo in the first vacation, yeah. you see her naked oh, yeah, and, he, you're and they're, right. they're much more that. sexual together in the first one. Well, let's get into this really quick to take a quick kind of sidebar. Are you a Chevy dude? I don't think so. No. Um, well, I may be because I, I, always, I debated this with myself quite a bit. Okay. We're probably on the same page. From everything I've heard, I don't think he's a very good person. Bad person. So I think that it's harder for me to kind of buy in kind of whole hog into like, I like Chevy. But I mean, I like the vacation movies. I really I love Caddyshack. I think Caddy, I think, well, he's one of the highlights of that movie. I mean, he's among like heavy hitters. And everything he does, his sarcastic takedown, again, of the rich, even though he is also rich, is he's so good at that, like, I mean, every, his one-off lines in this, um, like, uh, muchas gracias, tierra del fuego, just these, and it's like, yeah, that's racist, but he has these, like, asides that are just, like, he keeps, like, shooting you with, um, and so I, I think I might be, um, as a very roundabout way to say yes, maybe. Well, Caddyshack, I think, is like possibly top five comedy of all time for me. I don't know if it's necessarily because of Chevy, but at the same time, and obviously, you can debate for hours on end who's the best part of fucking Caddyshack. Right. Like, is it Bill Murray? Is it Chevy Chase? Is it, is it Ted Knight? Is it Rodney fucking Dane? It is Rodney Dane. Yeah, it's, if yeah. we're being real. But I mean, his Ty Webb... There are times where I watch the movie and I go, oh no, that's the best part of it. Because again, some of his one-offs are just amazing. How do you measure yourself, sir? Against other golfers? Oh, by height. And it's like, <laughs> the one that I steal from Caddyshack like constantly is, oh, don't sell yourself short, Judge. You're a tremendous slouch. Like he just has some of the greatest exchanges with folks and it just feel, it doesn't feel scripted. Like that was, that's kind of Chase's gift is that it always feels off the cuff. Like he would just be like that in real life. Now he's an asshole in real life because I mean like there's notorious stories stretching back to like the original SNL days of like Murray hated him. I think Belushi wasn't a huge fan of his either. Um, wasn't there like some, I don't know if it's an urban legend or whatever, but when they made Caddyshack, like they realized basically as they were making it, Oh shit, we have two of the biggest SNL stars ever like in our movie and we need to have a scene with them. So they basically invented a scene where Ty Webb and Carl Spackler meet. But I believe the urban legend goes that Murray didn't want to do the scene because he hated Chevy Chase. I, yeah, I've always heard it was much more Murray toward Chase, that he just despised him. Yeah. Well, I know that because Chase was there first, and Murray came on in season two. Yeah. And as the kind of replacement, because Chevy very quickly hopped off the show, like, I'm on to bigger and better things. He wanted to be a movie star. Yeah, very quickly. Now, let's use that to segue into the Chevy versus Eddie Murphy thing when we talk about Fletch versus Beverly Hills Cop, is that I think the the leg that 
uh, Murphy has up on Chevy Chase is the fact that he did 48 hours. So we already had a great action film with Eddie Murphy. And like, I think that helped us kind of gravitate towards Axel Foley and accept him as like a very funny character in like a, a straight up action movie to where like, we never really had that from Chase. Like Chase never did a genre movie. He never did an action film. He wasn't, he certainly didn't do a Walter Hill film. So it's like, I think that's what holds me back from fully buying into Fletch. Like all the way is like just a mystery is the fact that like Chase still feels out of place, even though like the tonal shifts match the book's tonal shift because the book gets fucking dark. Like Bobby ODs and dies and he wakes up next to this dead 15 year old heroin addict and like decides to like hide and bury her body and like make it part of his grand kind of scheme to like take down this corrupt sheriff and everything. But it's like, it's, it's gnarly. Like he has run-ins with the cops where he gets the shit beat out of him. Like even some of the Stanwick stuff is like, it gets pretty dark even by the end because, and here's how the, the end differs is that where in the movie, it turns out that the sheriff and Stanwick are in cahoots with each other. He basically exposes the Joe Don Baker character in the book um, for being the source of the heroin because they're basically beating up like a, a more privileged kid who's found his way to the beach and has become like a heroin addict. Fletch always notices that every time the, the cops come down to raid them, they always end up taking him in and nobody else. And he finds out because he can never figure out who the source for Fat Sam, who's the, the drug dealer on the beach. He can't figure out who the source is because Fat Sam never like leaves his lean to. So he's like, How, it's, the drugs have to be dropped off to him some way. Well, he finds out that every time they pick this one like kid up the sheriff's giving him the drugs under the guise of arresting him him so that he can go drop it off. And then fat Sam never has to leave the beach. So he busts the Joe Don Baker character. And when he goes to essentially kill the Stanwyck character, uh, Joe Don Baker's character shows up the, the corrupt sheriff and he ends up shooting Alan Stanwyck by, by accident and killing him and then getting arrested at the scene. That's how the the book actually ends. And because in the movie, he also kills him. Right. Yeah. Um, well, because it, it, that's a similar um, narrative structure, though, because you have Gummy, the African-American guy on the beach, right. who's also been take, he's taken by the cops, and Fletch kind of figures out, I threw a rock, I threw like a, a brick at the car, and they didn't even turn around. Right. You know, because they're taking him off to basically fill his pockets, Which the, drop it, him back off. It's similar to, it's a riff on what happens in the book, is that they come down and raid and like Fletch literally punches three different cops and then gets his skull cracked open by another one and wakes up on the beach just covered in blood. But they only arrested this one kid that didn't even arrest him. And like his editors or anything didn't let the cops know. So they don't know he's a reporter. So that's how he kind of puts two and two together in his like concussed like haste where he goes, why am I not in jail? And he kind of fit uh, fits all the pieces together. Well, I mean, it makes sense that like the tonal shifts work better on the page. They usually do. And they do in a film because you have a lot more, um, more elements to deal sure. with in terms of performance and like, and filmmaking, um, and music and everything. Cause like this one, I mean, again, the Faltermeyer score, um, gives it this light kind of, this kind of buoyant feel. Well, it's, um, it almost sounds like a B side to the Beverly Hills cop theme. It's, it's barely different. Yeah. 
it's almost like the you know reanimator score versus the psycho score. It's like they changed a few notes. Yeah, <laughs> it feels like that. Or Vanilla Ice versus Queen. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It's like legally I'm cool, but no. It the the and I again I really like Fletch, but between it's 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 kind of jarring, especially for his performance when it goes from again this like mile a minute joke joke joke, also dressing up and just doing. Like the whole thing of him like going to the plane and like and talking to the two guys working on the like on the engine, like that scene goes too long. It like, goes on for that's fucking probably ever. the worst ones. I don't think the joke works, which is also one of the most. I know that it's one of the most iconic scenes from the movie because it's the one big time fans of Fletch that I guess they do exist. That's the one that they actually like cling to is that they love that where he's doing like the mechanic thing with the false teeth and stuff. And for me, I'm like, can we just move fucking along? And also like this movie has an amazing supporting cast that feels completely squandered the entire time. Like George Went plays Fat Sam. Uh, M. Emmett Walsh plays the doctor in a scene that's pretty. That's one of the scenes that's pretty close to the book. Um, Moon River. Yeah, well, until, yeah, all of the... You get your whole fist up there, Doc? Yeah, the, the, the ass-probing elements of it. That is not in the book. But, I mean, like, th- that whole approach is the way that Fletch kind of starts to get to Stanwyck and try to investigate, like, his supposed cancer diagnosis. Because that's why he hires Fletch to kill him, is that he's like, I'm a dying man. Yeah. I'm insured for, like, $3 million. I'm the president of this, like, aviation parts... Uh, company that's huge uh, but if I kill myself because that's Fletch's thing he goes why don't you just fucking kill yourself and he goes well if I kill myself then the insurance money doesn't pay out to my family and it's like so I need you to murder me and it's like okay and that's how Fletch starts like that's one of the the big like phone conversations that he has is he calls the doctor and he's basically trying to like pull out of him like is he well? Is he okay? And the doctors are like, yeah, he seems fine. Like, I don't know. I can't talk about a patient, but sure. But here it becomes like, again, it's another example of how it transmutes almost into complete shtick because then it becomes a whole scene about M. Emmett Walsh sticking his fingers up, you know, Chevy Chase's ass. But I mean, like, why isn't that scene longer? Like, instead we have this weird, like, false teeth, like, mechanic thing that goes on for fucking ever. And then, what's his name, who plays Stanwyck himself, is Tim Matheson. Tim Matheson from Animal House, and also the vice president from West Wing. Like, he's barely in the movie. Now, granted, the character's kind of barely in the book, but you would think that if you're going to cast these people in these roles, you would at least get, like, you would give them something to do a little more than they do instead of just letting Chase kind of go and riff. We got William Sanderson in here too. Oh yeah, that's right. You got Uncle Phil. Oh yeah, um, as one of the cops. And he then, has like two lines though. He shows up for like a scene. Yes, and then Ralph Seymour. Oh yeah, on the beach. So another actor we've had in three different episodes: Killer Party, Meatballs Two, and now this. <laughs> but what it's, a resume! It, but it's just funny. We have these like, like we had Henry Silva in three, and now we have Ralph Sil- Ralph Seymour. Also, rest in peace, Henry Silva. Yeah, who just recently passed, unfortunately. But. Here's a, another question I have for you, since we're kind of on the topic. All the names we just listed are only really relevant if you watch a lot of fucking movies. <laughs> um, but I also had a question, even watching Confess Fletch as much as I really liked it, and I wondered if I should save that for that segment, but I'm just going to do it now. Why Fletch? Why reboot 
this character now because I can't imagine that this is relevant to anybody under 40. I can only imagine it is a passion project from someone like Matola. I mean, I would love to obviously ask him that. Um, this seems... This also seems that we'll get it more, you know, heavily during that section, but it feels like a Matola movie too. Oh yeah. Um, and I'm a really big fan of everything he's done. I, I just watched Day Trippers and that movie is fantastic. Um, but it really kind of captures his shtick. So I can almost imagine that like, I could see Matola being like, oh, what could I, you know, what could I pitch? And, you know, you get John Hammond as a producer. It seems like it's their movie that they want to make, not like there's an audience for that whatsoever but i think it's gonna find its audience i don't think the budget was very big no it's a yeah. small movie you know and like you said it's very soderbergh and it's like not even not in that many locations it actually is kind of like a lot of it's in the apartments a lot of it's like you, you see a lot of the same locations over and over again they reuse you could see the you could kind of see the the budget on the screen but it all really works and that's honestly the part that makes it feel the most like the books is that it's a lot of people just in rooms talking like i feel like they blew the majority of the budget on that rome title sequence where you just have john ham on a scooter like you know putt-putting around rome yes um that was the only thing that I, that was the main question that i had watching it and then even re-watching fletch is that it was like if it's not a huge formative kind of movie for us guys who watch hundreds of movies a year, like I just don't know who this fucking film is for because it like, and and even like this episode itself is kind of for because like there I don't think there's many diehard Fletch heads out there, you know, of the 1985 film either. It's just kind of like it almost feels like an artifact from a very specific era. Yeah, I mean, again, bringing up Beverly Hills Cop, like part four is being filmed as we speak and people are losing their shit, like on both sides. But it's yeah. like, it's a culturally important sequel, you know? And even though that, fest, that series kind of, you know, fizzled out with, with Landis' film, which actually I kind of like, but it was not a huge you hit. You like Beverly Hills Cop 3? I, yeah, I do. Good Lord. I know. I, I love that whole series. Um, I love 2 because of Tony Scott. Oh, it's fucking great. Um, I haven't watched 3 in a while, so do bear with me on that. Um, that movie blows, dude. <laughs> but we it, should do a whole Beverly Hills Cop episode when the actual series comes out. Or is it a series or a sequel? Just a movie. And Judge Reinhold and the other cop are both back. Like, I saw the set photos very recently. old. Oh, yeah. Very, uh, <laughs> they look like death, frankly. <laughs> they don't look great. But you know what? They look happy to be there. They they genuinely look. John Aston, right? Yes. Yeah. Or John Ashton. John Ashton. Ashton from yeah. Midnight Run, too. Yes. Um, but yeah, again, like there's no one and there was no one waiting for Confess Fletch. And look, I mean, how this was released, the release structure. It's like basically it's the it's the the blended model of a few it was the, barely released. a few theaters and then a twenty dollar rental on on Prime or on on Apple. And then it's gonna be on Paramount Plus, I believe, is the next step. Yeah, and it it, it feels pretty close to a streaming movie. I mean it, it watching it. Um It almost feels like a pilot. Yeah. Yeah, and... Which I would watch the shit out of this series. I think this would do really well. I mean, honestly, it looks like an HBO show, just the kind of the look of it, or a Showtime show is like an eight-episode comedy series with John Hamm as Fletch. And it's like, what, like 100 minutes, an hour 40, I mm -hmm. want to say? They're all around an hour and 36 to 38 minutes, yeah. all three of them. It's perfect. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. It's It was just a thing that I was thinking about while watching it and watching the first Fletch is that it was like... These movies aren't relevant 
to like a newer generation. Cause even at the bar and stuff, like I was like, Oh shit. I just saw the new Fletch movie. And they're like, who the fuck is Fletch? And I'm like, Oh, that's right. You're 24. You don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. When even in, in Chevy's filmography, I mean, people are going to think of the vacation movies. They're going to think of Caddyshack first, even though Fletch is like more of a, yeah, more of a, a I guess a, a Chevy vehicle. I mean, full on a Chevy vehicle. Well, this is kind of at the peak of Chevy stardom, yeah. right? Is because you have uh, Caddyshack in what, 1980, mm-hmm. I want to say. And then you have uh, vacations like 82 or 83, you have, you know, his run of solo movies like Funny Farm and stuff. Um, because, like, during the 80s, he was a massive star all the way up to Christmas Vacation is, what, 89, 90? 88 or 89. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Fletch Lives is 89 and almost feels like the period to the end of his cinematic sentence in a weird way. Because then you have his dramatic downfall because Chase is also known for, like, notoriously flopping on TV with the Chevy Chase show. Yep. And like he, it's, it's one of the most notorious bombs to where like it killed his entire career. And then he really didn't have a resurgence outside of like community. Like that was his first big comeback was being in Dan Harmon's show. Yeah. And he would also show up and like bit parts in, you know, n- younger SNL. I mean, he's in dirty work, yeah. you know, in nine, what, 97. Um, so he would kind of pop up as like the old guard, but those almost, yeah, you know, I but, was going to say but those almost felt like favors, oh, absolutely. you know, to where it was They're like, Oh, sad. Chevy's like sitting around, like not doing anything. Let's throw him a couple hundred bucks and get him on here. Like community, even he's playing an incredibly like, let's say supportive role as opposed to, you know, one of the main, I mean, the leads of that show are Joe McHale and, and Donald Glover and stuff. It is an ensemble, but like, uh, he's much more backgrounded in being like the super goofy old man. And then, and as the show went on even more, even more background. Well, and that cancels his career again, because there's the infamous stories about him basically saying like racist shit to Donald Glover to try and like goat him almost because Donald Glover's take was like, he was like, jealous of his talent or something. Well, he should be. And, uh, you know, Chase was basically just trying to like needle him the entire time and would say stuff like, you know, they only think you're funny because you're black. And it's like, and he was trying to pass it off as like a joke. And it was like, uh, you can't say that. And then he got kicked off the show. Not surprised. But since we're talking about racisms, should we talk about Fletch Lives real quick? Yes. Uh, A movie that contains... More uncomfortable racial shit and Southern stereotypes than Django Unchained. Like, absolute ridiculous that this movie exists. And there's a reason that I think it's kind of fallen off the cultural map even harder than Fletch itself. Because, like, watching it, I got 10 minutes in and got to that Song of the South dream sequence where Fletch envisions all of the people from his life are his slaves on a plantation. And I went, oh, all right. This movie is fucking weird. Like, it's <laughs> really fucking weird. So that scene, I kept writing down that the common joke in this film is putting white people as almost into the black role in a racist situation. So you right. have that one. First, because I remembered it in my brain of it being African-American people playing his quote-unquote slaves. Because I was my brain was like, well, that's what they are. You know, they are the slaves. So that would be historically accurate. Like, oh, I said, oh no, it's even Mr. Underhill from the first movie. Like he's pulling in characters from the first movie of people he doesn't like. 
And literally, like the his lawyer, his wife's lawyer, he's like shining the guy's bald head and, and petting him and calling him boy. Oh my god! And then <laughs> he's dressed like Colonel Sanders. He like he looks like Don Johnson from Django Unchained. Like it's horrifying. Or Colonel Angus from SNL, Christopher Walken. Yeah, exactly. Colonel Angus is coming. Um, and but you have that scene, and then there's the the, the Ku Klux Klan scene. So he's, which again feels like Django Unchained. It like I was thinking of it to where I was like, did Tarantino lift the scene from Fletch Lives? I. I would not be surprised knowing him and his like just movie knowledge, right? Um, because you have a similar stick of like trying to talk in the megaphone, lifting the 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 confusion with the mask. Also, you have like he's almost like a Jonah Hill character with the bad the bad mask. Um, but it's like Cleavon My Little fucking eye holes, <laughs> like Cleavon Little sitting on the, the porch with him, and they're talking about oh this is like it's so nice to be here in the peace and quiet. Hard cut to. KKK guys basically getting ready to burn a cross on his front lawn. And they can't get the cross to burn. And they can't get it to burn. And they are basically saying, we don't want any carpetbaggers. We don't want any Yankees here. They're not. And then the whole thing that Cleveland Little says, oh, they're not here for me. They're here for you. So he keeps doing these racial scenes, but then pointing it towards a white character. And it's like, I don't think it's funny. I don't even, it's offensive, but also it's like not, even at that time period, I don't think it's a funny joke. Like, do you know what I'm saying? It's not funny, but it's weirdly watchable. And I'm not going to lie. I did chuckle at a lot of it, but I think I chuckled because I was like, what the fuck am I even watching for like half of it? Because it does take now. It's, it's notable that, you know, for the first film, they were adapting one of McDonald's books for the second one. They don't even do that at all. It's just he, you know, Chase reteams with Michael Ritchie, the director, who's also directed one of Eddie Murphy's most notorious movies, The Golden Child. A big flop. Yeah, massive flop. Um, I believe either the same year or the year after Fletch came out. 85 or 86, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, he reteams with Michael Ritchie. They just don't adapt a book whatsoever, but they still kind of keep the structure and tone from the books intact to one degree or another. Um, to where it's about, you know, Chase plays Fletcher again. He's quits his job when he finds out that his great aunt died and left him a southern plantation in Mississippi. And he flies down to inherit it and becomes the fish out of water. But yeah, it's weird. All the racisms are directed towards him as the, the big, goofy, white carpetbagger. And you watch it and... You had a good point off, Mike, that when we were talking about this before we started recording, is that Cleavon Little seems to be the only person who knows what movie he's in because he's very much doing the Blazing Saddles thing of like playing up and knowing that he's the token black guy and the the racial stereotype and like leaning into it and being like, well, if this is going to be the role that I play, then I'm going to full on like call back to one of the greatest comedies of all time. That's what's weird, though, too. I feel like both these movies kind of take the wrong lesson from other movies. So, sure. like, the first one is, like, let's do Beverly Hills Cop, and it doesn't quite crack that code. This one's trying to also pull on Blazing Saddles, but does not have the nuanced writing of, you know, a Mel Brooks. And the performance, it's so, like... No, it's it, Michael Ritchie. <laughs> you know, yeah, and it, but, it, you know, you know, Mel Brooks, like, 
that's still a very uncomfortable film, but he it's so well balanced and is still you know considered a masterpiece. And it's uncomfortable now, but it's still like, how did you pull this off? Well, and it's like, uncomfortable because it actually has something to say. This is uncomfortable because it's white dudes telling jokes that they shouldn't be telling. There's yeah, a there's yes. a distinct difference between the two. And to kind of ride off of what you're talking about with like Fletch and the Beverly Hills Cop connection is that it's like. The score is the dead tip-off when you have the Harold Fultemeyer score, and especially once you start reading the history of how the score was implemented, is that there was another composer uh, who wrote a whole score for Fletch and was replaced in like the 11th hour of production to the point to where his name appeared on all the early posters for the film and wasn't replaced with Fultemeyer's until they reprinted a bunch of posters. And he basically was brought in after... Uh, Beverly Hills Cop made over $300 million worldwide, which was unheard of in the early 80s. And uh, they decided, like, how do we chase that dragon? How do we make this same movie? And they try to, and it, it does feel egregious. It's almost like you said that they learned the, the wrong lessons entirely, is that it's like, well, if they hear... It's almost like they, they were treating the audience like dogs. To where it's like if they hear you this like dog whistle, it's like, you like that? You'll laugh at this, you know? And it doesn't quite work out. But Fletch Lives, man, it just, it, it takes everything that I don't like about the first, which is the goofy shtick, and just ups it to like, like 8,000. Because like once he's like, taken to jail by the corrupt cops and then is almost raped by Randall Tex Cobb who's in like transvestite that's, that's the joke they makeup. keep they keep saying yep Ooh, and it's right because you're not even supposed to use that word anymore frankly but it's like it's they use in the movie yeah I, I should say that but it's like they it's really uh it's gnarly like a lot of the humor is gnarly like the whole end sequence where he stumbles into like the, the sons and daughters of the Confederacy thing where they're all dressed up in uh, the, the gray uniforms and Hal Holbrook is there and doing this really goofy, like almost like foghorn leghorn accent the entire time. Like this movie's just off the fucking rails, man. Yeah. And there's something we'll talk about with Confessed Fletch, but I think what's great about the character in that film, and you see it more in the first Fletch than you do in Fletch Lives, is the man of the people energy of the character, uh, especially his scenes with like with Ralph Seymour, where he kind of turns to him and says, like, you got to get yourself straight. A real moment of like, the, the drugs are going to kill you. Um, but also the fact that he's writing about these people who are doing drugs, but he's also trying to help them. It's this right. sense of like taking down. The, and that's the, the stuff from the book. Yeah. And I, you see that a lot with confessed Fletch when they kind of deal more with like the art world and how rich people are just taking everything for themselves. And Fletch Liz kind of tries to do that too, where it's like, Hey, I'm the white guy who's going to like basically beat up the, or basically the bad white, the, the bad white racist people. It's like, but dude, like, you're not coming off clean in this either as a performer, Chevy, or also the character. It's like, again, it doesn't quite get to eat its cake and have its cake and eat it too. Um, it's it's a failure in what I, what I think it's trying to do. Now, granted, this might have been the low hum of the, the small dose of mushrooms that I took last night while I was watching this, but I did <laughs> laugh at some of it. Like, there were just moments oh, yeah. where I was like, this is just incredibly goofy. And the, the one thing I will say is that Chase and Little have decent chemistry. Like they they're do. fun to watch together. 
Um, well, because Little's so good, no matter what he does. Like, well, yeah, he's, he's just an, a, a hilarious, like almost inherently hilarious human being. And Arlie Ermey, as the televangelist that he thinks, because the, the whole plot of Fletch Lives is that someone's trying to buy Fletch's land, and it seems like they're hiring these KKK guys and biker gangs and everything to try and scare him off. And that's the mystery that he starts investigating and how Holbrook is like this southern goofball lawyer that he he thinks at first is like on his side but he immediately pins it all on Arlie Ermey who's like this insane like almost like Tammy Faye Baker uh and Jim Baker style like uh televangelist preacher who's doing all kinds of crazy crowd tricks and whatever and Arlie Ermey's pretty fucking funny in this he movie. is good in this because he he actually gets to do a role that you don't see Ermy do a whole lot, which is comedy, frankly, and he can be really funny. Yeah, and again, like you said too, this one is so much more vignette-y. Like, it, like you, the stuff you said you annoyed me about the first one is definitely you know expanded on in this. There's just more vignettes, and there's I mean, more there's, disguises. That's what I'm saying. The more, yeah, more disguise scenes. Like the biker scene is super long. There's, there's way too many scenes of him, or a long scene of him uh, as the faith healer which is a really annoying character. He's also in brown face in that in a weird way. Like, what is he supposed to be? I don't know what nationality he's playing there. Oh God. Like he has that goofy mustache and like, again, the teeth and the glasses when he goes on the faith healer. Oh show. yeah. That, that character. He yeah. looks like fucking Borat. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, you could and again, you could see, you could see kind of like, again, almost like Richie, Richie and Chase, like learning the wrong lesson from the first movie of what people liked about that one. It's like, oh, I don't need to see you. You even look at one of the original covers for Fletch Liz and it's all his costumes. Yeah, there, there's it was like all the, it was like these little these little photos of all the people he played. Like, look, come see the master disguise. You know, the fucking Dana Carvey thing. He's going to play all these roles. That's really not Chase's thing. Chase has always been funny being Chase. You know, I don't need to see him play dress up. And that's the thing that I was almost trying to pathologize uh, Chase to a certain degree to where I was like, why are we doing this? Doesn't feel like your routine. Mm -hmm. Like your routine is being the fast talking kind of cute, goofy, like middle aged dude who's who's more or less like a slacker, but can kind of like charm his way in and out of any situation. Like, I don't need you doing like strange lovian like false teeth peter sellers characters the whole time like that's not that's not what you do do you know what's weird i'm just thinking about it now what he's running behind eddie again this is the year after coming to america oh and that was eddie one of the first movies where he plays like five or six different characters but you know what eddie's really good at that and the characters are distinct and they're part of the plot and it's him well, in Trading Places, too, is what, 83 or uh-huh. 84? So, like, which was a huge hit. And you have not only Murphy, but also Dan Aykroyd. And they have the whole sequence on the train where they go over under, undercover, which feels straight up like it could have been out of a Fletch movie. Yes. Because so, you even have Jamie Lee Curtis and later Hosen. Yep. Yeah. No, good point. I hadn't considered the fact that maybe he was chasing a dragon of his own, like the studio was trying to do with Beverly Hills Cop, is that he's seeing all these peers of his kind of do these routines and do them, frankly, better than he ever could. Like, fucking, you want to talk about chemistry and one of the most formative comedies of, like, my entire life, 
Trading places, man. I watched it on the plane. God damn. Dude, it's so good. It's still it's still one of the funniest fucking movies that's ever been made, ever. You want to talk about a movie that I quote like endlessly, like just off the cuff in everyday life? <laughs> Ain't so safe being a jive turkey this close to Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> It's just one of the great, man, one of the great movies of all time. But again, has dudes from SNL dressing up and like doing routines, doing characters and like, and just has like effortless like chemistry with the whole cast. Oh yeah. Also first time you ever see Jamie Lee Curtis's boobs as Randy famously pointed out in Scream. Uh, That's why I bought that on VHS. When I met Jamie Lee Curtis, I was convinced she saw in my eyes that that was like my movie. (laughs) She didn't see Halloween in your eyes. She saw trading places. I really literally, when I was meeting her, I was like, oh my God, you're, she knows. Like she knows I paused that scene over and over again in middle and high school. Um, And beat it. (laughs) Now, before we get to Confess Fletch, uh, the one thing I will say is that if you want to see a good Michael Ritchie movie that takes place in the South and deals with a bunch of really gnarly Southern stereotypes, have you ever seen Prime Cut? I have not. With Lee Marvin and Gene Hackman, Sissy Spacek. You had it on the the Kino Blu-ray, and you were showing it to me at your place. Yeah. That's an incredible movie. Really great low-key early 70s action film with a lot of weird like uncomfortable nudity sex uh gene hackman plays like a meat packing plant like crime boss like he's he's the bad guy in it lee marvin goes in it like takes him on cc spacek and another the girl from gator bait whose name i'm mm. forgetting not claudia jennings the other one the, the dark-haired one um they're in like he runs like this brothel out of a barn where the girls are in like literal like pig pens together, like naked and stuff. It's a, it's like a true exploitation movie, but like if you don't feel like sitting through Fletch lives, here's the good version of it. And like prime cut, mm, that's an exhumed classic. Like they used to show, they used to have this series that they did at the Broadway theater in Pittman, New Jersey, where they would play non horror movies on Sundays. And it was like their exploitation like series and they would play stuff like assault on precinct 13 and um, this like prime cut. And I remember seeing prime cut for the first time and being like just my whole brain lighting up and being like, Oh my God. Awesome movie. And of course, bad news bears. One of my favorite movies. True. It's fan. And another film also also very racial. Well, sure. You know, because that's of the times too, but you know, that one seems to play better than the stuff they try to do in Fletch Lives. It's not mean-spirited. Yeah. Where the stuff in Fletch Lives feels legit mean-spirited. And also just tone-deaf. Like, yeah. really tone-deaf. Like, like you said, two white dudes trying to get a laugh. And it's like... One, Bad News Bears is what, 79? 76, I think? 76. So yeah. you're 13 years yeah. before Fletch Lives then. So you're kind of in the period where you want to be like, you should know better. Yeah, you don't t- need to it's be It's time to move jokes. on, y'all. <laughs> But speaking of moving on, you want to do Confess Fletch? Yes, sir. All right.
we're back with this year's Confess Fletch. Martin, I think it's a safe bet to say we both love this movie. It's fantastic. You told me, you're like, you saw it before me. You're like, I think you're really going to like this. And like from the first minute, I was just so in. Again, I'm a Greg Matola fan. So like, and I like John, I like John Hamm. So chances were pretty good. This was going to work for me. And it honestly, it really, there aren't many missteps in the movie. It's so tonally kind of, of a piece. Um, and, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I think what makes it stand out is that Fletch is not the only funny character. I mean, you, you look at like the, the, the first two we talked, and it's usually, besides Cleavon Little in the second one, it's all about Chevy Chase. Like, he's the funny guy. It's like we talk about meatballs, right? The first meatballs is all Bill Murray. This is like an ensemble almost. You think about the scenes where they're all together at dinner and all the kind of plot lines cross. The neighbor, played by Kristen Wiig's writing partner, I'm sorry, I forget her name, um, her whole plot line, that whole scene. like It's just like, on a scene-to-scene basis, it's fucking hilarious. It's a good mystery. Oh, Annie Mamulo? Yes. Yeah. She's, She's so great. good in this movie. And here's the thing about Confess Fletch, is that I read three books. I read Fletch, Confess Fletch, which is the second book in the series, and then Fletch One, which is the the prequel that came out the same year that the original Chevy Chase Fletch came out. This movie is the books, more or less. Like, beat for beat, plot-wise, like, it's almost identical to Confess Fletch to the point to where, like, I watched the movie before I read the book, and, like, I had to kind of slog through the first 50 pages being like, oh, wow, this is, like really, really uh, high in terms of its fidelity rate. But like, dude, you're, you totally hit the nail on the head. Is that like what Matola nails here? It's kind of, I know they're not this like remotely similar outside of sharing the same director, but it reminds me a lot of what made Adventureland. Yes, so exactly. Good. I was, I completely the, agree. There were so many great characters in Adventureland from Jesse Eisenberg to uh, Martin Starr, Martin Starr, Ryan Reynolds coming in back before Ryan Reynolds was the most annoying person to ever exist. Um, Lisa P. Kristen Stewart. Oh, Kristen Stewart. Yeah. At like, her maybe most cute, like just her cutest. Yeah. And she like almost the manic pixie dream girl without being manic. I was going to say like, and she is kind of manic because she has the whole attraction to older guys and married guys thing that's going on in the yeah. plot line for that. But it's like it gives all of these characters like their own moment to shine, their own kind of vulnerable moment. It really nails the ensemble of it and says like Jesse Eisenberg is the star, obviously, like it's his story. But like it's all of these people make up this microcosm in this universe that that uh, comprises Adventureland. And it just... I, it made me want to go back. I haven't rewatched it yet, but I really want to go back and rewatch Adventureland because that was my favorite movie of that year when it came out. And like Matola is so good with actors and he's so good with finding little traits and nuances that just totally define the character. And like here he lets them be zany and he almost taps into like a fifties or even thirties and forties kind of screwball comedy yes. energy. Mm-hmm. It's some Howard Hawks shit going on. Some real Howard Hawks, like bringing up baby type stuff, mm-hmm. like the Annie Mamulo stuff where she's the hippy dippy, like next door neighbor who literally lights herself on fire and slices just, her hand, open. slices her hand. Or, Ooh, that's a lot of blood. Oh, it's <laughs> and, and John Hamm just looking like, yes, yeah, 
That's still bleeding. Uh, the chicken. You, you should wrap that. She's like trying to make chicken, and it's like covered in blood, and she lets it burn. It's insane. It's such a great scene. Um, straight up, the Countess, it, Marcia Gay Harden's character, is that that character on the page. She, like she even says Fletch. Like when she, when the Countess says Flesh on the page, like that's how she says his name. It's F L E S A. She's a Flesh. And it's like she totally nails exactly who that is, what her relationship to Fletch is, the way she kind of just storms through every scene. And it's just this total like wrecking ball of like energy. Um, and then, frankly, just seeing John Slattery come back and oh, get to do my God. ping pong dialogue with John Hamm again, just that Mad Men reunion. Like they're so wonderful together. And like you wish that they shared more scenes. But again, he is the Frank from the books. He is the one, uh, the, the character that, that is totally nailed. The only thing is, that's one of the changes from the book, is that it's not the same editor. Like he doesn't, Frank doesn't like move to Boston. Right, how suddenly, Yeah, suddenly take over this. It's like a totally different editor that he actually does work for uh, in New England and Boston when Fletch goes there. But it's like, Slattery is how I imagined that character like on the page. Even because I read the Fletch novels. I read the first Fletch novel before I confessed Fletch, obviously. But like Frank is in that one. And like even when I was reading, I was like, oh, this sounds a lot like that John Slattery character. And then like I went back and rewatched the movie. And I was like, oh, it is supposed to be him. And like he's just so fucking good. And they even reference... Like they they drop in the names of like the girl that was Fletch's editor that Fletch hated in the first book, Clara Snow, that Frank was banging. And like he even says it to him when he tries to blackmail him in the bar the one time and like and Slatter just goes, Fuck off. Like that. It just it so reminded me of just getting back into that mad men mold and like seeing them on screen together was just it made me so fucking happy. There's the scene when you first see John Slatter, they come into the Boston newspaper office. And he's like, I fucking hate this place. And then Fletch is like, is that Pete over there? He's like, hey, Pete. Hey, Fletch. Slattery's like, I hate Pete too. <laughs> it's just this like boom, 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 boom. It's interesting too how the movie uh, acknowledges like the era update and COVID specifically because mm-hmm. it even makes the joke like it has Slattery be like, Nobody wants to return to the fucking office. I don't know what's going on here anymore. He's like, everybody needs to get back to work. And it's like, it's just hilarious because like, again, kind of unlike Fletch lives, let's say it's a weird, like political or moral stance that it's injecting. But you can tell that like the movie doesn't back that. That's just who that character is. I really, Speaking of that, what I think put this movie over the edge for me in terms of like liking it to loving it was this like was the subtext uh, about the art world, but also there's a line where he um, you were saying uh, you were talking about him kind of the, the closest thing to like a Chevy Chase scene of him playing a different character and pretending to be the somewhat fay um, uh, style editor who comes to. Well, I want to talk about that scene too because that's directly from the book, but it's slightly different like he but he does basically do the same thing on the page so it like replicates how he would play other people 
perfectly because like Fletch would do that, but it wouldn't be like some radical, like I do false teeth and a wig or whatever. It's just like he goes in and tweaks like what he is. But again, he's a reporter and he's just playing a different reporter. Yeah. I mean, but there's that line in that scene where he's like, don't you just hate people who can't afford beauty? Like, it's so and, good. And the laugh he does afterwards, too. And she's like, well, and because that's, that's a constant thing he does. He's constantly like hitting people like you all think you're such hot shit, you know, that you get to own art. And I think, I mean, the really wonderful image of in the story, he needs he needs a uh, a van that's going to blend in by being very odd looking. So he hires two local artists that he meets on the street who are doing a beautiful mural He's like, hey, here's 300 bucks. Do whatever you want to the van, but cover it. And again, you know, straight from the book, only it's not artists in the book. It's like some random like auto mechanic dude where he's like, here's 300 bucks. Just fucking make this van look different. Well, and that's cool, though, because you can see them where Matola's head's at. Yeah. Right? Like through that change, you see that he's like, this is about art. This is about who owns art. I mean, that's the whole plot of the movie, too. Right. It's just like ownership of art. Um and these beautiful things that are only get to be held by the rich, you know, and then he basically is, this has more kind of democratic view uh, of art. And I think also using the Remington images because you have this early scene where he says, oh, I'm, he makes up. He's here to you know write a, uh, a biography of a famous artist who did Western paintings. He's talking to, you know, slow-mo Morris, the, the cop. Slow-mo Monroe. Slow-mo Monroe, sorry. And he's like, oh, I prefer Remington. Fletch's like, you would. I mean, I was laughing my ass off. And one of the last shots, though, is these, it moves across these postcards, almost like Remington postcards with that that painter up to the Picasso. And it's this kind of thing of like, all art is worthwhile. I think it's also making this really cool statement on that. So just, it was hitting me on all levels. And also just being a really funny, entertaining, like little mystery that's not really about, there's a murder, but it's more about theft which kind of lightens the mood a little bit too. Well, and to take it back to the scene that you were talking about where he goes and interviews a potential murder suspect's uh, ex-wife, that actually is taken from the book, but what's different, and then again, it shows Fletch's weird sense of empathy, kind of like how you were saying, is that like there's, he almost has like this moral code about how like the rich and just own art. Like it's, it belongs to everybody. And like, there's different levels of art and everything here. It's kind of like Bobby from the first book in uh, confess Fletch. Fletch goes and interviews this ex-wife who left the potential murder suspect and became a lesbian and his whole guys that he goes under and when when the book starts approaching this this book's written two years after the first novel 1976 so i was go i was starting to cringe and have a fletch lives moment where i went oh here we no, go what are we doing here greg mcdonald but it becomes this incredibly empathetic scene because fletch goes undercover as a different reporter kind of like what he does only instead of being funny as the style reporter he uh, gets his in by saying, hey, you are a woman who uh, left a man for another woman. You were dealing with your closeted lesbianism. Like, I just want to write a story about that. We won't use your real name, but other women need to hear this from you because like, they need to know that what they're going through isn't abnormal and like to like know that their experience is shared and it has this, it's like this 10 page chapter 
in the middle of it where this woman basically explains like how she always felt different growing up. She always felt like, and she went through sex with guys, got married, tried to do the normal thing, didn't want to tell her parents. And then even after, and how like, you know, after she got married, like sex was always like this utilitarian kind of uh, act that she would perform. And like Fletch is like listening to her and like actually probing and, and asking like real questions about it and being like, well, why did you feel that way? Like how, like when did it change? And then she has, it's this incredible moving uh, like kind of little monologue that she has about meeting the woman who would become her partner for the first time and how all of a sudden she realized that like sex could be fun and like sex did mean something and like it touched her in a weird way. And as I was reading it, it's the anti Fletch lives thing to where I was like, holy shit. Like this guy wrote this incredibly like progressive kind of notion, like, like notion and themes like into this book because Fletch's whole thing is that even at the end, the woman goes, look, you can write about this, but I really want to read it before you put it out there. And he goes, you know what? You'll have it first thing because your story is more important than mine. And you just sit there and you go like, this isn't, it's not what you expect from this type of book. Um, And it's just, it's a really, really great, weird little scene in the middle of this otherwise kind of conventional, again, dime store paperback murder mystery. I like that. I, w- I want to read these too. Yeah, I, you can you I'm, can borrow I'm, them I'm now interested. because I own them all. <laughs> but it's like he does that. And here's the the other major change is that Slow Mo Monroe is not a character from the books. He is a stand-in for a, a character named Flynn, Inspector Flynn, who was uh, Greg McDonald's other big character. He actually spun this guy off into having his own series of four books, I want to say, and the first one is called Flynn, uh, Flynn's in the Buck Passes Flynn, and Flynn's World are like the four novels, but he... So Flynn and Fletch. Yeah, it's Flynn and Fletch, but in the book, he's like straight up Brendan Gleeson. He's this big, red-faced, burly Irish dude, talks with like the straight-off-the-boat brogue, and is like what you would imagine like a Boston police inspector would be like, you know, and even he retains that joke that he even says to Roy Wood Jr. In the movie because he goes inspector. He goes, yeah, you know, and they, but they never really elaborate on it, but it makes more sense in the context of the book of this guy feeling more like almost like a Scotland yard type inspector. Um, but he is a really fascinating character because the whole time I was reading it and I was like, oh, this is a really deliberate decision to have this uh, police detective come in and be this kind of red-faced Irish dude who like has um, the same reputation as slow-mo. He takes a, a, a very uh, deliberate pace Mm -hmm. to solving crimes but they call him reluctant Flynn (laughs) in the books because he's always reluctant to make an arrest without absolutely knowing that he has the right man well there's another crazy chapter where again it becomes this long ass monologue to where Flynn outlines his backstory to Fletch because they had over just this bottle of whiskey which Flynn doesn't drink at all he drinks tea while he buys 
Fletch a bottle of good whiskey. He says, the city of Boston, I think, owes this to you while we continue to investigate you for this murder because I know you did it. And I need you because the running joke it is this the same from the movie. He goes, you know, it would be a lot easier if you just confess right now. Um, but Flynn lays out this whole backstory to him to where he was a Hitler youth. Yeah, it's really weird. It's a, and again, it's wow. a it's a, a strange moment where he you're reading it and you're like, where is this fucking going? And now he talks about how his dad essentially was a refugee. Or he was a um, almost like an ambassador to Germany uh, during the 30s. And then World War II starts, the rise of the Third Reich, Hitler, everything. And his dad fell in with the Nazi party, not because he wanted to, but because he was basically out of obligation Mm -hmm. or he would have been executed along with every other foreigner who was in there. So Flynn became a Nazi youth, went through all the rigmarole. Well, it's a very long-winded story that gets to the end to where Flynn basically reveals that his dad was more or less a spy and sending uh, transmissions back from like Nazi Germany to uh, the the uh, British like S- like uh, SS and the the special agents and everything to try and like, oh, SAS, infiltrate yeah. the SAS. That's it to try and infiltrate them. And Flynn still like retained and became an agent himself and isn't actually a detective. Like he, and the reason that he's reluctant Flynn isn't that he's bad at the job. It's that he literally cops to, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never been a detective before. I'm actually a spy who's just been here the whole time under this cover. So these guys make this weird like kinship together to where they like Fletch is always this guy who's putting on different identities in the name of like, like finding the truth and like breaking these stories to where Flynn is the same kind of guy too, just on the other side of the law to where he's a, a cop who's not actually a cop. He's just playing one because he's stuck in this country like that, that he was stationed at when he used to be a spy and didn't know how to do anything else. And I could totally tell why McDonald became obsessed with him and spun him off into his own series of novels. Because at the end of confess Fletch, I went, well, I'm definitely buying all the Flynn books now. Cause I want to see like what this guy's further adventures really are. Well, that sounds like some crazy genre. Yeah. Going off the beaten path stuff. So is that, is that common in the, in the Fletch books as well of like, that's a pretty heavy, like, thick fun genre myth building or is it more still sticking to like the the kind of ground level detective thing no that's the fun thing about the fletch books that i think confess fletch the movie really nails especially with the score that it has it literally has a jazz score in it that was just released on blue note records um it has a jazzy feel to where you can always feel like he's sort of taking the kind of like what we talk about with slashers is that he's taking the foundations or the bones or the the outline of what we know to be like the dime store paperback novel and playing inside with all these different notes and beats and like having a lot of fun with it to where that's what the the books become a lot of fun is that they they become unpredictable mm. because like for, I was, like I said earlier, kind of slogging through the first 50 to 70 pages of Confess Fletch because it was almost like I'd seen the movie. I know what's happening. And it's like, it's so beat for beat verbatim that I was like, do I even really need to read this? It feels like Matola just like 
took the book and just put it on screen like almost perfectly. And then this chapter happened where Flynn does the confession of being a Nazi youth. And I went, oh, what the fuck is going on here? And then the the lesbian interview happens about 30 to 40 pages after that. And I went, oh man, we're just really doing a thing here. And Fletch won the prequel, which takes it back to Fletch being an, an early young reporter working his way up under Frank uh, again, his editor, the John Slattery character. Um, and like, it's about how he infiltrates this kind of crime underworld and really like gets to like screwball mafia guys and weird like ex-wives, uh, like widows, like the these strange like gambling debts and stuff. And like, again, he's kind of, he knows the tropes and he fucks with them a little bit. And that's what makes them a lot of fun to just rip through because like these books max out like, like the movies maxing out at a hundred minutes, the books out of the three I read, the the longest one was 270 pages. That's what I'm talking about. That's how I was able to just blast through three in a week is that I would just sit down, read 60 pages at a time, go off, do something else, come back, read 60 pages at a time. Before I knew it, I was done. Yeah. You still read basically half a Stephen King novel by reading three of those. No, a full one. I mean, yeah. I read 800 pages of Fletch. Oh, that's, oh yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, I mean, but no, they're, they're great little books. Like, I have two more because um, I bought, like, a, a, a lot of five old, like, dime store paperbacks from, like, their original pressings off of eBay for, like, 20 bucks or something and just ripped right through them. They're just sitting in my living room where all my other books are and, like... I, I've had the most fun doing these and they've gotten me back into reading to where I'm like, all right, I'm just get between this and reading heat two right before it. I'm now a book guy again. Yeah. It was also extremely readable. So I wanted to ask you about though. I mean, we, you talk about how this is obviously is much closer to the source material than, than the Chevy chase films, but let's just speak about John Hamm as well, because it is a very like tuned in performance. Um, because it's not just ham doing ham. Um, it feels at times very accurately in a good way of he's really kind of controlling, controlling the scene. Um, but also like Fletcher relying on his charm and also just being much more dashingly handsome than Chevy chase. Like I believe oh God, that everyone yeah. wants to fuck him. Cause like I'd fuck John ham. So I just wondered what you think about his performance. I think it's great. I'm just interested. Like, He's not doing Chevy Chase at all. It's a complete. It feels like a completely different character to me. Um, yeah, the closest he gets is when he puts on those glasses yes. and goes undercover as the Faye reporter. But even then, again, if you've read the books, you know that like he's kind of doing that on on the page as well. So it's not that big of a departure. The thing that I said to our buddy James Shapiro after I watched the screener for the first time is that I was like, "This is the role that you wonder." why John Hamm didn't have it 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Like right after Mad... Well, Mad Men would have still been going on, but maybe during the peak of Mad Men and right after like Bridesmaids and stuff came out, which is more than 10 years now. That's like what, 13, 14 at this point. It's before I moved to Austin. Wow. So like, you know, Bridesmaids was capitalizing on John Hamm's increasing stock from Mad Men and putting him in as the shitty boyfriend and stuff. And he's fucking funny as hell he's in that great. movie. But that was the movie that I remember going like, okay, this is going to be the next step 
for Ham is that he starts playing in this kind of Apatow world, showing us that he's funny, showing us that he can do different things. And then we're going to get the full on like Ham, uh, like, like leading man role. But it never really came. Like, Matola actually tried the one time because he made that one movie with him, Keeping Up with the Freedmans. Oh, shit. Whatever, with him and Galifianakis, too, which is okay. It's probably, out of all the Matola movies, I think his worst one. But it's still, like, incredibly watchable because he's so good with actors again. And, like, it's it's more screwball comedy-ish. It reminded me a lot of, like, Spy uh, with Melissa mm. McCarthy. But, yeah, it just... I, I don't know... If Ham is one of those guys, because here's the crazy thing, and I said this to, to both Shapiro and Carrie, like after we watched it, because Carrie watched this with me twice too, and she like totally loved it. She compared it to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I think is a pretty apt yeah. comparison because there's a lot of Soderbergh and there's a lot of Shane Black, just again with like his Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and, and the nice guys, how it just feels like this freewheeling, noirish throwback that owes a lot of debts to these old yellow page like paperbacks from like the the 60s 70s um but like is ham just a guy that's not gonna happen because even with this movie like he's great in it and it's the the role that you wish he took like when theaters were still much more active, when his stock was still kind of on the rise, like it it feels like it should have come out 10 years ago. But even then, if this movie had come out 10 years ago, I go back to the, the, the question I asked in the last segment is that why Fletch? I just don't know if he's good at picking material because in the same year, the thing me and Carrie were talking about is that he's also the progressive guy now. He's doing the flow commercials where he's hitting on flow from progressive insurance. So it's weird to watch a dude who is in arguably one of the greatest television shows of all time and created one of the most iconic television characters of our time is now in progressive commercials. And like in a movie that has the Miramax logo which is a bummer and is going kind of straight, like it's in theaters, but it's more or less a streaming vehicle in the age of content. And like, it's going to be forgotten. I think John Hamm's problem and it's not his fault is that I think a lot of the audience just sees him as this ridiculously handsome guy. And like, that's the joke they're playing on the progressive commercials is he's not just John Hamm. He's this ridiculously like, like George Clooney esque, movie star, but I don't think he's been able to build a persona outside of Madman and outside of, oh, I'm handsome John Hamm. Like even dude, even the show Toast of London with uh Matt Barry, he comes on playing himself and he's so handsome that instead of leaving his entire estate to Stephen Toast, his father leaves it to John Hamm because he's so handsome. Like he's blinded by his beauty. Well like, and it's that's the joke. Didn't he have the Black Mirror episode too yeah. that he was in? Like, and that came out around like the same time as like Bridesmaids and all that. So again, it, it felt like he was having a moment. The, uh, the other theory that I came up with and, and Carrie kind of spun this off while we were talking about it too, is that you wonder if he's one of those guys who's going to be haunted by this one character for the rest of his career in the same way that like Brian Cranston's going to be haunted by Walter White forever is that like you made a dude and that's what like 
people are always going to associate with you to the point to where like, they don't really want to see you play anything else. They want to see Brian Cranston play Walter White. They want to see John Hamm play Don Draper. Like, and maybe that was part of the, the genius part of Matola's part of bringing Slattery back so that you kind of like tap into a little bit of those Proustian juices, let's say that it's like, okay, like, yeah, we get to see these guys do shtick together, and it's really wonderful because, like, you it reminds you of, of uh, you know, the, the Mad Men days. And, and maybe Ham, for all of his great work in Mad Men, that's also going to hamstring him for the rest of his life. I mean, it's happened time and again before to other performers. Yeah, I think if it didn't happen already, it's not going to happen. You know, I think he would have needed to do... Or, or really double down, like you said, with the bridesmaid stuff of like do a, a really heavy push into comedy. Or like the town to bring it back to our boy Ben Affleck. Like he's great in the town playing the heavy. He's also in one of the biggest movies. No, the biggest fucking movie of the last few years with Top Gun Maverick. But here he's relegated in Maverick to being like the most stock 80s villain yep. that we could get. He's great at it. But again, it almost feels like he's just a cog in that in Tom Cruise's machine. Let's say he, he's—I mean—he's fallen into character actor. I, I think he really, really yeah. has. Like he's this guy that's like he's going to show up. It's almost like how Baldwin was used for a while too, where like Baldwin would play. He's also a similar guy who's very handsome, you know, and would just play a similar type of role. Would play government people or what have you, you know, and kind of come in in that way. Here's my other theory. And I and the other comparison in my head that I'll do and, and stick with me when I say, I wonder if he's gonna have a Keanu Reeves moment. Hmm. I wonder if he's gonna be one of those guys who are like for years we associated Keanu Reeves with Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, a lot of fumblings during the nineties trying to do movies that might have been outside of his grasp. Then he tries to do some action stuff and like point break and things, but like even those movies took a while to catch on and find their cult audiences. Like even the, like what this past week, we just got a Constantine two announcement. And like when that move now, everybody loves Constantine. I remember when fucking Constantine came out and I like, I went and saw that movie in the theaters and loved it. But I told people and they were like, get the fuck out of here. You're out of your mind. Now all of a sudden Constantine is some like beloved classic. Yeah. Where were you people when this movie first came out? Because you certainly didn't see it in the empty theater. I fucking saw it. I went opening night with my buddy, my buddy Jeff. But how empty was that theater? There's no one there. Yeah. Like Friday night. That movie did okay business. And like Francis Lawrence was like a really great like workman kind of director at that Still level is. of making that genre stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's making what like hunger games movies and stuff now, but it's like, I wonder if ham's going to have a similar thing to where like, there's going to be a John wick hmm. or like some kind of reinvention to where all of a sudden we see him in a totally different light of being like, Oh shit, John ham's back. And like, his stock just goes all the way back up again because in the same way that like Reeves, we always associated Reeves with a certain type of persona, the whole like kind of California stoner, like surfer type thing. Even as Neo. Like even as Neo and frankly kind of as John Wick too. Like he has, like John Wick, it really plays into his lackadaisical like everyman thing that he he became good at as his career went on. But you wonder, like Keanu was a born movie star. It just 
took a while for that movie star quality to finally catch up with him. And now he's beloved by everyone. Again, there was a period during that time where like you would tell Keanu people Keanu was awesome and they'd look at you like you had four eyes. And they're like, really? And you're like, yeah, I've always been a member of the Keanu cult. Dude. Him, but, and, him and Cage, another a similar thing, you know, where people yeah. like completely turned on Cage. Oh, well, you, it's bullshit. It's like, and now everyone's ironically, like, I've always liked Cage. I'm like, you can get out of my house right fucking now because you're a liar. Yeah. You know, like, and you wonder if that maybe that's going to be the next thing for Ham to where like he'll keep popping up and stuff like this that like true believers really like. Like when Ham finally has his moments 10 years from now and we're, we're both in our fucking 50s, we can be like, of course he did. Did you see Confess Fletch? We did. We loved it. We podcasted about that motherfucker. Now we can't even speak because we only talk through like robots or something. But like... <laughs> my head's in the glass jar. My head's in the glass jar. Legs. <laughs> I look like Ted Williams. <laughs> but it's like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like that's what's going to happen with John Hamm is that something's going to come along. It's going to reinvent him and then we're going to go like Don Draper's going to go away. I also wonder if he's the kind of guy, I'm really surprised he didn't go to Marvel or DC, honestly. Well, weren't um, they pushing for him to be Superman for like a little bit? I don't know if anyone was. I think it was more fan casting. Okay. But like, that's my thought. I mean, he looks like fucking Superman. He looks like Clark Kent too. Like Clark Kent, but also like Bruce Wayne. Like he is a perfect like 1940s like matinee idol, like who should be playing in like a period piece Batman or superhero Superman movie. Well, that's why he worked so well as Draper. Like he fit into that period. Yeah. But that's what I mean As I wonder kind of like how you always bring up when we talk about slashers, how how, uh, Ryan Turek said at that one convention, if you can crack it, if you can crack the slasher, like you're going to be the next big thing in horror. I think the person who cracks the John Hamm persona and like subverts or just utilizes his look, his very distinct, handsome look and charm in a, a new way, then that's that's what's gonna like get him out of progressive commercials. Let's say, and something more major key. This is a very minor key film, right? I mean, it's just you know, I mean, you got to have. We we're talking about you know actor vehicles. Like even the first Fletch is that's Chevy at full Chevy, Beverly Hills Cop, Eddie at full Eddie. This is not, this is him doing subdued ham. Right. And I've seen him be a lot wackier, like in the Wet Hot American Summer series. Oh, yeah. I forgot he was in that. You know, he, he, he can go really goofy. So I don't know if it's that or if it's a full on, like, badass action movie. Well, because he even did the 30 Rock stuff, too, yeah. to where he's great and he can be totally goofy. That's the thing is that he seems like a guy, like Sergio the Sexy Sax Man. Yeah. Like, he knows where his bread is buttered and he's really funny. He seems like a neat like guy to actually like just hang out with despite being, you don't want to leave your like wife around him or anything. Nope. But like, you know, he, he seems like a normal funny guy just inside of this incredibly handsome body. And it's like, somebody just needs to, to like break that out to be like, what's the next evolution of John Hamm the same way that you know the the John Wick guys were like Keanu we know what we can do with you yes well Martin this has been great I hope it was a blast we help kind of grow the cult of Confess Fletch which is already growing Um, this is one of the best movies uh, of this year I hope you see it either in theaters at home honestly this is one of those movies I don't think you need to see well maybe to see Lorenza Izzo just in all of her Italian glory but 
you it's like you said a minor key film feels like a tv pilot and i think it's gonna have like a huge audience down the line it's just not right now the studio just didn't know what the fuck to do with this movie but again definitely check it out i think anyone that gives it a chance is gonna enjoy it it's it's a ride it's super fun i love it it's definitely top 10 of the year for me thus far um and our next episode is going to be the season finale wow and we have another kind of book club episode coming up, but you'll have to stay tuned, even though you can probably guess what it is. Uh, you'll have to stay tuned to see what it is on Secret Handshake. See you next time.